Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer, and we are back after our long, long break. Michael, how have you been? Long, long break. You know, it's all over. Yes, but that's where we were. It's not how you are. Yeah, well, it's it's a little bit how I am as well. We picked a bad time to take time off. There was so much news. Yeah, there was loads of stuff happening when we left, and now we come back. I mean, we had the AstraZeneca contract ruling from the Belgian courts, at least the provisional ruling, which was interesting. Yeah. I saw Naomi O'Leary came out and claimed this was a great win for the EU. <laughs> oh, I love Naomi. She's tough. She's she's loyal. I went from, from looking at Naomi to just looking at Politico. I think they've retitled it now, but their initial heading on it was AstraZeneca wins. And I was like, hmm, Politico is saying that. That's not good. It's not good. It's not great. It really isn't. What I kind of liked about that whole story was the ability that you got quite a number of people had to make the story sound like it was the UK's fault, in some sense, fault, that they had managed to negotiate a better contract, a more well-designed contract that they had. It was it was in some sense their low-down nefarious cheating fault that they had bothered to get people in to draft their contract who understood the business of drafting international trade deals or pharmaceutical contracts and they had done so and they in london with and spoke english possibly it's the first language and all sorts of things like that that this somehow was demonstrative of some low native cunning about the english rather than just gross fuck of incompetence on behalf of the EU. I was mostly just interested to see the Belgian court willing to uh, ignore the provision that said there can't be legal action because of this. But we will see when it goes to its uh, fuller hearings, which I think are in September. But so far, it's provided a result that both sides are able to say they've won. Yeah, I'd still say it's if the right at the moment is to get, if you were asking me the score, I'd say it's 1-0 to AstraZeneca. We had um, sentencing in the Derek Chauvin case, 22 years. Also very interesting, didn't see that one coming. That will be appealed. Didn't see so much about that coming. I got so much about that wrong. I didn't think that they would make secondary murder in a fish. I didn't, if they did make anything like it, I thought it I mean, the basis of the, the evidence that you're talking like a five to seven. Eight, oh. I remember when we when we were talking about this, for those who can't recall Derek Chauvin, it was, it was the George Floyd case. And um, we had pulled the department training papers and the department training papers clearly said that what Chauvin had did, maybe not the extent of it, but the movement that putting the knee on the neck was an accepted and trained part of the uh, police force in that area. And then you had the police chief of the city come onto the stand, and I've never seen a man thrown under a bus like that. And his defence lawyers just let it go. But anyway, that will be uh, that will be appealed. There will be a lot of stuff there. The passivity of the defence on the few bits when I, that I hooked in to follow it, I didn't follow it with any great care. But the passivity of his defence seemed to be just odd. Any, the whole thing I thought was odd. But there you go. It's a different system. I also noted that, but then I sort of went, well, is he going to try for a mistrial? And he's just not really trying a lot now. But things like the police chief going up and saying that this was not something they've been trained for when there's documentary evidence that they would have, and just letting that slide is uh, not great. Then we had Matt Hancock, and now everyone knows that Matt Hancock kisses exactly the way you would have thought Matt Hancock would. (laughs) 
that had never occurred to me that this was it. So, yeah, I can see what you mean. Yeah, no. Matt Hancock, who apparently decides that uh, he's going to conduct an affair in full view of a CCTV camera he knows is there. He knew it was... The, well, yeah, I suppose I'm told that the United Kingdom, the, the, the CCTV camera, is now so ubiquitous. You have to forget, because otherwise you just feel yourself under supervision or observation at all times. And I say I'm told, I mean that on the basis of numbers, the United Kingdom seems to be peculiarly rich in uh, close-circuit television or security camera uh, in comparison to other developed countries not maybe in comparison to china but as i say other democracies that was a very fun scandal from talking to people around in and around whitehall because uh it was quite well done michael it was a security guard or contractor or someone just recorded on their phone from the actual um, recording and then waited a month because unless something is flagged in the recordings, after a month the recordings are deleted and then leaked it to the sun after that had happened. And then, of course, some of the Tories leaked to one of the papers a false claim that it was in fact a hidden camera. And then it turned out, no, it was just a CCTV camera. The, the, that brief period between the discovery and and... The resignation where he desperately he tried to hang on. What was very noticeable, it was the absolute lack of support he got from his colleagues. You, you learned very quickly, not, Mr. Hang on, not, not beloved by the Tory party, not beloved of his cabinet colleagues. I think he was the last remnant of the Cameron people, really, wasn't he? Uh, was Hancock a Remainer also? I have a notion in my head now that he was a Remainer and therefore, in many ways, he was the last rem- the last remains of a of a different Tory party in a different Britain before the before the tide went out. Now has washed it all away. But it was fu- it was good. So I suppose for the social conservatives out there, the most upsetting thing about it was that <laughs> the outrage in the reporting was that he was breaking social distancing rules rather than the fact he was committing adultery. And betraying his wife and small children. With a woman who I believe is also married. With children. Uh, they have now decided they are, they, are, they are leaving and forsaking their previous partners and are going to set up home together. What else happened? We had Philip Nolan revealing that he doesn't know how vaccine efficiency works, which was delightful to from the person heading up the modelling. Uh, a second member of ISAG came out and confirmed that they had shared the material that Grip said they had shared when we published on their leaked emails. That was also fun. That got absolutely no news coverage. Shea Bowes sued me for defamation, which was very fun. Yeah, yeah, fun. Mm. Do you ever, did you ever run the bulls in Pamplona? No, no, I haven't. I'm imagining it's a similar kind of fun. I know, the man threatens to sue me for months for defamation because I, I wrote a story on a, an, an account which I was able to link to him. A wholly untrue and unfounded story, I might say, from my perspective, Gary. Oh, I have to say, I stand fully behind it, Michael, and look forward to vigorously defending it in court. And I completely detach myself from any supporting of Gary's position. Who And I think that Gary uh, needs to uh, make sure that everybody knows that Michael was not involved in this at all. Sorry. No, no, feel free. Now we're in an active defamation case, which I obviously can't talk about. All I can say is the man has impeccable timing. He threatens me for months. 
and then he sends it in when I go on holiday. Are you saying that that was good because it, since you're on holiday, you had time to deal with it, or bad because it, ruined, it sort of spoiled your holiday? Uh, well, I mean, it didn't spoil my holiday, but I would have preferred it didn't occur during it. I was up the north enjoying the, the full force of indoor dining. Indoor dining? Really, Gary? Tell us, what's it like? Dining indoors. Oh, Michael, it was majestic. I, I used the Michelin Guide and just a little bit of a food tour of the north. So, and then I came to the south and I, I sort of had forgotten that you can't eat indoors because that seems ridiculous. But is it true, Gary, up north you can drink indoors as well? Pints and gins and tonics and everything. Actually, I never tried to go to a pub. I only, I drank, but always in restaurants. But still, it's indoors. In restaurants. Drinking indoors in restaurants, that's even better than a pub. Yes, and now we're having this whole debate again in in the rest of Ireland, and I'm just like, well, like I can drive for an hour and a half and go to a Michelin-starred restaurant in the north, so it doesn't really affect me at all, does it? just means it's more awkward to get lunch. <laughs> it's a distance for lunch. It depends where you live, I suppose. Um, it would be a long... It would be a... It would be a, it would be a commitment for me to take lunch in the north now. Uh, I suspect... If I'm looking for Michelin stars, I have to get to Belfast. So, oh, what what is that? Well, you've, you've a couple of options outside Belfast, but they're mostly in the north, like the north of the north. So Belfast is kind of the easiest. The only problem, Michael, is all of these like restaurants, they get a Michelin star and then it's just tasting menus. Yes, yes, that's true. I just want a traditional menu. None of this tasting menu nonsense. Fifteen courses that require some kind of optical magnification to be able to locate it on your plate. Yeah, by course 10 you want to die. Taste sensation. I remember many moons ago being at a very, very fine restaurant, I'm sure it was, and they had a ridiculous tasting menu. It was like 18 or 20 courses. But the worst of it, the worst of it, the best of it, depends how you see it, was that if you paid the extra 170, 100 quid it was, you also got you got a matching wine with it. And I don't think they had quite worked it out, Gary. This was maybe the beginning of the process for them because they were giving you so little food and so much wine. By the time you got to the, shall we say, two-thirds of the way through it, pissed as a fart. Absolute everybody who was doing the tasting menu was twisted, which is not what you're supposed to be at a very fine dining institution. But there you go. So the thing is, Gary, how far behind is the North on the whole indoor dining? We must be... They've been doing this for a while now, haven't they? Since May, isn't it? So they're around six weeks of this. And they've been doing the Delta variant. At the very beginning, the infectivity was the big thing. It was going to be more infectious and it was going to be more dangerous. They're now saying that the fatality rate is somewhere between 0.1, which would be the same as the flu, to 0.3, as opposed to 2.0, which was the rate for the alpha variant. And the big, big news is, even though they keep talking about vaccine escape, uh, if you have been double vaccinated with any of the vac- with Pfizer or Moderna or AstraZeneca, you're talking about a very, very high level of protection against the possibility of infection. And you're talking about pretty well complete protection against hospitalization, severe illness or death. And that's really, isn't it? That's the big thing. The, obs- the obsession with case numbers has, as I think we suggested some time ago, Gary, now become a real problem. If we're going to continue measuring everything by case numbers, when the context in which those cases exists and the demographic which is suffering from those cases is a very different demographic than the one that we were looking at 
12 or 15 months ago. The case number, the case figures are not just going to be less informed, so they're going to be positively problematic. The naming convention, I think, is a bit annoying that we changed it halfway through this. So the alpha variant is the Kent variant. Beta, the beta variant is the South African. Gamma is the Brazilian. Delta is the Indian, as they would have been called before this. I thought that was easier to remember. And I also thought it was easier to remember what the particular characteristics that went with each variant were, actually. But anyway, it's become very clear to me, if you are if you're occupying the kind of space that I suppose that we would have done about the virus, am I fair? would it be fair to say to Gary that we are much in the same place regarding the response to the virus as we were when it started? And to the extent that it feels like we've changed, it's rather because the thing has changed around us. That people say, "Oh, you were you were saying you were singing a different tune." I was like, for, I was very much in favour of lockdown at the beginning. I thought it was necessary. I thought we didn't know enough about this thing. I thought the threat to the ICU and to the hospitals that was rather than the, the necessarily the danger of the, the the specific danger of the disease itself, but the threat that it had to overwhelm the ICUs and the hospital system, which could lead to the consequences that would lead to would that was uh, that was a real issue. We seem to be caught now. Like masks, we went from the masks, no, not wearing masks, masks bad, masks leading to all sorts of negative outcomes, to now people are still wearing masks outdoors on beaches when they're walking. And listen, you know, if I, I am absolutely not one of those people who would ever consider going up to someone who was wearing a mask and making a comment at them that was negative or aggressive or suggesting something. If that's what you feel, if that makes you feel more comfortable, uh, about going outside, well, then absolutely wear a mask. I think it's much better that people do that and go outside and socialize and take some air and take some than stay inside. I think we're going to see lots of people wearing masks in the future anyway in winter. Nothing to do with COVID. I think like you see in Japan and Korea during the, 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 the flu seasons, you're going to see people doing this. What I hadn't really taken on board is the degree, I think, to which most people think that we're doing a good job most people and so when you if you could if you talk about say this decision which we're getting at which is the decision not to open up uh indoor dining right which in it in, in and of itself is probably quite a small issue you know it's a it, but it's rather if we take considered symptomatic of an attitude rather than anything else there's no awareness gary that we are in any sense an outlier the response is, oh, well, that's what, if that's where the science is and that's what the doctors are saying, that's what the experts are saying, I'm not going to listen to a publican. I'm not going to listen to some hotelier who's greedy and just wants people coming into his business. You may, I don't know, did you hear that the Republic of North Macedonia has folded? And therefore now, out of 49 countries in Europe, 48 are allowing indoor dining and one is not. Yeah, I saw Map was doing the rounds, which is making that claim. And the response to it from uh, people were, there were two lines. One was, the map is wrong, which is fair. You know, the map is either wrong or right. Absolutely fair, it claims one or the other. And the second was that it was a far-right map, Michael. Far-right map? It was put out by the wrong kinds of people. <laughs> it was a far-right map. Um, does it include Danzig as part of Germany? Uh no, it, the only time I've ever heard someone say that about a map before was the Chinese Department of Foreign Affairs on a map that had Taiwan. So, um, not suggesting there's any similarities there, but I think there may have been a sort of 
Well, I don't like what it says. Therefore, it's far right. And then even the journal looked into it and said, actually, no, the map is, is broadly correct. It doesn't say there are no restrictions on indoor dining in the countries that it says are open. It says that you can go and indoor dine, and you can in those countries. Ireland appears to now be the only country in Europe in which you cannot do that. Although even then, Michael, as we were discussing, only parts of Ireland can you not indoor dine. Only only bits of it. Does it but do you not come to a point, Gary, is it not reasonable to say that if you are the only country out of 49 that has taken this position, that in order to maintain your position, it's the onus is now, is now on you to produce the extraordinary evidence. You know the old saw, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Well, it seems to me at this stage, when the public health authorities and the immunologists and virologists et al, et al of countries as diverse as Norway, Germany, Hungary, Portugal and Greece have all come to the conclusion that it's reasonable and safe to dine indoors and we have come to the conclusion that it is not, then I think we, they need to show us their cards. I heard a, a comment from a doctor who I think was repre I think representing one of the, the perhaps the GPs saying in what sounded like an eminently reasonable thing, lads, you know, if we only wait three or four weeks, another three or four weeks, things will be much, will, things will be safer. You know, it's only it's only another four weeks in the context of things. If we just wait another four weeks, it'll be well. I suppose there are two responses: is first of all, well, it'll be even safer in eight weeks, won't it? and 12 weeks well that'd be safer again sure if we waited till christmas and sure christmas is always a bad time what what but the second thing is it all and perhaps more to the point this shows no understanding at all of the fact that there are going to be people in rural ireland particularly and in tourist areas for whom losing the month of july and the business that goes with the month of july is going to be catastrophic for them Every week we'll see the, the death of an other number of businesses that are desperately clinging on, desperately clinging on every other week where they, where they don't have the income. But particularly those businesses for whom July might be, it might, it's one month, but it could be two, and a, two or two and a half months of their, normal, of their normal revenue. And you're saying, no, well, we're just going to wait. But, but and my final question, point is this, and this I'll throw it back, throw to you is, when they talk, they use the word safer and they use more risky, less risk. But Gary, isn't that fundamentally a misuse of language when you don't give any kind of context of what that means? If it's simply a comparative, this is safer than this, that is utterly meaningless. If you say, as they do, if you are, in fact, if you are vaccinated, you can catch the disease, you can still catch the virus. And if you have the virus, then you can transmit it. Okay, but I want them to tell me what is the probability of that? We now have lots of real time. How often does that happen? Does that happen in one case in a hundred, one case in 10? Are we talking about a case in a thousand or a case in 10,000? Until you have some kind of context for what words like safer and less safe, riskier, mean unless you put those into a context or a sense of probability it's absolutely meaningless 
And I, because they refuse to do it, I have to assume at a certain point that they're doing it deliberately. Another thing we're the last on. The, um, and the European Commission came out and said this, the EU Digital COVID Certificate for Travel. We haven't put that on at all. We're the only country in Europe that hasn't. We said it was due to the cyber attack. Then We couldn't put it on. However, there was an interesting letter from Ryanair that uh, came out. Michael O'Leary sent it as an uh, open letter. And in that, it makes the claim that Ryanair were able to get confirmation from the system provider that the system to activate that for Ireland is, is able to be turned on at any time. The Irish government simply haven't. Yes, I saw. I heard Michael making that claim. And actually, that was on Neffet. It was Neffet going before the aviation, um, going before the transport committee to talk about aviation. We would have talked about this before, but we may not have talked about this part. When they were there, Michael McNamara asked them what they thought about the Ferguson report. And the Ferguson report had come out very positively on antigen testing. And then we did nothing on the report because Michael Martin became fixated in the fact it wasn't a unanimous report, Michael, which must be the nightmare scenario for Michael Martin. Yes, he's got the report he wanted, but there's disagreement within the report itself. Horrifying. Neffet were asked what they thought about the Ferguson report and if they had, if they had discussed it. And they just said they hadn't. They said they'd, they'd never met on it. And then Houlihan basically said, well, I wasn't there when it came out. And it's actually this chap's fault. But Neffet, who are meant to be the people advising the government on this, and are now talking about antigen testing, never bothered to discuss a report from the chief scientific officer of the you know, the Irish state. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and a cynical person, Michael, might say that that is because it gave a result that they didn't like. But regardless of that, if you are the entity tasked with advising the government and you're just not fucking bothering to read you know, quite important reports for whatever reason, you're probably not fit for your position. That just seems reasonable to me. If you're not going to bother reading the reports, you're probably not good at your job. Well, there's an odd coincidental coincidentality about it, isn't it? That we know that they have been historically suspicious or hostile to the use of antigen testing, at least certainly in the hands of the laity. And a report is done which is positive in this country by the chief scientific officer, and they don't read it. You think it, at least curiosity might drive you since this is your business? Yeah, I, I just... It was sort of a... I wouldn't say shocking revelation because I didn't have terribly high expectations, but that seems like a big deal. You are the people handling all this, or we just haven't read it. Why haven't you read it? Very long, very hard, big words, lots of sums. They were actively talking about the area that the report is on, and they're actively advising on it. And they've actively come out against its use. But then you, again, Michael, you have to go, well, how would you know that? You haven't read the report. You haven't read the report. Maybe there are. It does make it very easy when someone goes, what do you think of Ferguson's recommendations? Because you can just answer, I don't. It is really, you know, I, you can't blame Neffet because it's the government's fault. Neffet can't make them do anything. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. But I, I just wonder how long that particular notion is going to take to filter through to the voting population. Because I think that purely, in my opinion, Neffet looks very much like a lot of things that are set up by Irish governments. They are apparently expert groups or independent bodies 
set up in order to give the best advice or to provide correct independent management of a resource or a department. But in fact, what they're actually there to do is to provide prophylactic, political prophylaxis to the government. So they go, well, you know, we were just following advice. You know, what could we do? Oh, we just we, we were just trying to do the best for the country. And, you know, the, basically bigger boys came along and made me do it. And that is and has been for getting on 20 years now, the basic strategy of politics in this country. Bigger boys came along and made me do it. Sir. For years, we used to do it in Brussels. We still do it in Brussels. But we do it with the HSC. We do it with Neffet. It's just a handy way of politicians divest themselves of the responsibility which is theirs. Yeah. But then when you look at the opposition, the opposition, bar the independents and Palatobian, are totally silent on this issue. Or are supportive of it, but just very quietly. There was a time, am I, am I misremembering this? There was a time that Sinn Féin was even more enthusiastic about, you know, harder, longer, faster. Some of the Sinn Féin people have been very positive on the zero COVID idea. And you kind of got an idea of how that went when they were asked about it later and simply denied that they'd ever held those positions. That we were all misremembering it. Yeah, fortunately, some of those misrememberings were backed by, you know, footage even the even the Sock Dems had that wonderful moment of uh, zero COVID. To maybe things have gone a bit far. Yeah. That didn't take very long either, though, did it? No, there was that thing when businesses started to fail, that a lot of people who had been very much on that position sort of went, oh, that's uh, it's not a good look for us to be pro this, is it? Business, I was, it's funny, I was talking to an economist the last couple of days whose prediction is that as we speak, Pascal Donoghue, is desperately shopping for jobs in Europe or indeed anywhere, maybe the World Bank, maybe anywhere, to get out of the next budget because he said the situation uh, come October and for heading into next year is going to be so calamitous that nobody's going, no sensible man is going to want to be near it. Well, that's it's not just whatever economist you were talking about who's saying that. That is the, that's the word around town, Michael. But Pascal is looking for an out. Some people are saying it's because they think his seat is gone in the next election. And some people are just saying he's just looking into the void that has become our finances and going, I don't want to be here for that. And indeed, both could be true. Yeah, and actually his long-term advisor, Ed Brophy. Ed Brophy, who was previously, he was the advisor of, um, is it Joan Burton? He's announced he's gone. I'm not sure if he's actually gone, gone yet. But he's going. And if he's going, it's a question of how long... Pascal is there without him. We can keep talking about Gary, and I'm sure we will, but it's not going to, it's not going to get his dinner indoors anytime soon. I suppose moving on to, to something else, which is also something we can't stop, but we may as well comment on. The Irish Times is under a little bit of fire, Michael, for its advertorial policies. The fine moral distinctions between Hungarian propaganda and Chinese propaganda. Yeah, so for those who don't know, an advertorial is an advertisement written in the style of a newspaper piece placed inside a newspaper. And depending on how much this is differentiated, a careless reader might read it and think it is, in fact, content from that newspaper. The Irish Times will say they clearly differentiate all this material. If you go into the Irish Times website and you go down to the bottom, you'll see a little section called Sponsored, and they are all paid-for pieces. They've got one from Huawei right now, but they do loads of them, and, you know, they're they're a nice little money spinner for them. The uh, problem that some people have brought up with their website, Michael, is if you go to the Irish Times search function, and let's say put in Huawei, the first thing that will come up is the um, 
sponsored post by Huawei. And that when you actually search the Irish Times, they put advertisements and advertorials in with the actual news. But they're not really under fire for that so much as a very particular ad. They put a full page ad by the uh, Chinese embassy into their paper uh, recently. I believe it was to mark the 100th year anniversary of the CCP. Oh yes, indeed we are celebrating that this year. The glorious anniversary. And they, they put this full page out. And it was all about how great China is and the CCP and how strong the country was and how much it respects human rights and all of that good stuff. Problem came, Michael, when some people pointed out that that could probably be classed as propaganda and perhaps the Irish Times shouldn't print Chinese state propaganda. You know, people who care about those sort of things. And that was made worse because people remembered that only a few days before that, Naomi O'Leary had written a story pointing out that the Irish Times had refused to print ads from uh, Victor Orban. Because... Orban had tried to place ads in uh, newspapers all across the EU talking about the uh, policies of Hungary because it was felt that Hungary is getting an unfair rap and the Irish Times refused to accept that. Yeah, I can understand. But this, I can understand that the Irish Times might find many aspects of Viktor Orban's policy bouquet as being unacceptable and distasteful or indeed worse than distasteful. But if you're going to reject Hungary but take the money from the Chinese Communist Party, you're going to have to... That's a tricky one. That's a tricky one to... to there, there are two ideas that you can hold in your head at the same time. I don't know how you do that. I, I think, just to give you an exact quote from the uh, Naomi O'Leary uh, piece, and Naomi O'Leary works for the Irish Times, so presumably she's got the inside line on why the inside time, or sorry, the, the Irish Times said they wouldn't print this. And she says that the Irish Times refused to print the ad because it was an attempt to influence discussion over an issue that was the subject of reporting and done in a way that used cash to bypass the usual editorial process to get space directly on the page. And this is different to the Chinese in some substantial way? Well, no one has been able to figure that one out yet, but clearly it is because they ran the Chinese ad. But no one, no one has, has been quite able to pin what the difference is. But there is something there, clearly. It's a bit of a puzzler. It's almost like, and I, always, I say almost because obviously that can't be the answer, that the Irish Times is engaged in some kind of hypocritical policy, um, some kind of double dealing, inconsistency almost. But that seems unlikely. No, that, to say that would be the mark of a cynic. The mark of a cynic, Gary, and God knows one thing we're not is cynical. Cynicism is corrosive and bad, and we don't like we don't like cynics. Absolutely, it's just just something I noted anyway. Um, but then again, if they refused money from the Chinese embassy because of like the genocide or you know, things like that, then presumably they'd also have to refuse money from Huawei because of you know all of the political concerns there are there, Michael. Yeah, you mean concerns about the kind of the workers and the worker conditions in Huawei factories? No, no, no one gives a shit about that. I mean, the actual political considerations. I mean, if, if we're going to take a position on, you know, conditions in Chinese factories, we're just not taking advertisements from companies anymore. I suppose, yes. And anyway, the great thing about capitalism, Michael, is it shows you what people really think about things. 
for all people try and say that they care about human rights and like slave labor in the procurement chain, they don't. Because if they did, companies wouldn't use those things. But they do. Yeah, and you know, you you use use the word cynical earlier. I, I always think you know, of Oscar Wilde's definition of a cynic, and think that actually it's perfectly applicable to the market. And I don't mean this in a bad way. He said that a cynic is a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And that is the market. The market will tell you something's price, it will tell you nothing about its value. And in this case, if you're being driven by the market, you recognize the price of refusing some kinds of business and accepting other kinds of business. And you make that decision on the basis of what the market tells you. That will tell you nothing about the values involved in making those decisions. But like you say, the market, it does, the market will reveal. But interestingly enough, by purchasing certain goods on the market, it can reveal the values of those who purchased them. Yeah. So people are perfectly happy to use slave labor. As long as they don't have to think about it that much. And as long as it makes a phone sufficiently cheap. Yeah, as long as people don't go through that distasteful process of rubbing their nose in facts around what goes into the production of that particular piece of technology that they're so fond of, they They'd would really rather people didn't do that because that creates all sorts of uncomfortable. They'll still end up probably buying the, the damn thing anyway. Also, because let's be frank, the chances are that even if you move companies or you move, pro- you, you're not going to find, to try and find the product which is ethically produced and still gives you the same sort, same level of satisfaction is going to be a very, very difficult. One. And then, of course, you find, Michael, there's those problems where there are human issues, then there are larger issues that people care about. So, for instance, let's say, um, oh, let's take solar panels, for instance. Yeah. There's a there's a component of solar uh, panels called polysilicone. Now, would it surprise you, Michael, to know that Xinjiang province in China produces somewhere between 45 and 50% of the world's polysilicone? I wouldn't say it surpri- would surprise me, Gary, since I know nothing about polysilicone but if you were to tell me this is true i will believe you it's just it's just funny that uh somewhere between 45 and 50 percent of the world's polysilicone is in xinjiang considering that xinjiang is where the chinese government have those concentration camps and use all that forced labor and michael the last couple of months irritable people people who don't have other people's peace of mind they don't place that as importance to them, have been producing all of these research papers saying that slave labor is being used in the supply chain of solar panels because of this, and that, in fact, some of the the price of solar panels, all of this wonderful technology, may, in fact, not be due to manufacturing efficiency and may, in fact, just be used to the, the widespread usage of slave labor. But then you're also faced with the problem that you want your solar panels because you want to be a good person and save the world. Yeah, but you see, then you have the difficulty, Michael. You can save the world while also working a couple of child slaves to death. But anyway, Michael, there are too many people. There are too many people, Gary. And, you know, these equations are never simple. I just kind of like the fact that it's we're looking to China to supply us with the material that we're going to use to create the renewable resources. Uh, which is going to save the world when if we actually look at the emissions that people are most exercised about and are just coming 
out of China in larger and larger amounts as they build coal-fired plant after coal-fired plant. And absolutely nothing that we do in the process of absolutely destroying our economy and beggaring our people is going to make the slightest difference to the uh, global figure for emissions as long as the Chinese are allowed to go ahead doing what the Chinese are doing. I have, I've really enjoyed reading reports on Xinjiang and, and this area, but because, you know, such it's, it's such a good end goal, the production of solar panels, it's never slave labor. It's always forced or coerced labor from people living in concentration camps. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know how to react. I, what, none of this is new. What it, it it's not new in the sense that it's the same story, but every time it's just a different product or a different process, again and again and again, and we just we move on and we say, oh well, you know, what can you do? And hey ho, we shall have to do our own thing by ourselves and be a light onto the nations, you know, and let the Chinese work these things out. You have to be careful when you say things like, "What can we do?" Because if you say that, someone might give you an answer, and you don't want that. It's obviously a, a rhetorical, what can you oh, do? Oh, absolutely. It's a, it's a shrug your shoulders, put your hands out and say, yeah, what can you do? For God's sake, please don't tell me. No, it's it's what can you do strong with the implication that there is nothing that you want to know you can do. Or in, indeed that there isn't. Any, and any notion that there is something you could do is probably wrong in the face of it. For God's sake, don't, don't go down the, the line of actually answering that kind of question because that would be even more upsetting. No, no, no. But anyway, you now know where you can get Chinese Communist par- uh, propaganda in Ireland. Uh, page four to five of the Irish Times. Or online, just through their search function. You know, and, and I think that probably that's a good point to tie it up today so people can get out their Irish Times and go and, and, and see what the latest stories are from China. I would, I would point this out just in favour of the Irish Times. I think it was the day after they published that ad, they published an article from an Irish academic roundly castigating them for running that ad. <laughs> I suppose the Irish Times would say it was an attempt to be open and honest and balanced and to recognise that there is a debate here and it's a debate worth having. Comes across a little bit like, you know, whip me harder, Daddy. <laughs> and I suspect that whatever they paid him for the article was substantially less than they got paid for the ad- for the advertorial. I've been a bad, bad newspaper. I'd be a bad newspaper. We will be back as per normal on Wednesday. Until then, stay safe. All the best.